It was exciting growing up around Dad. He brought the heady outside world into our house. The phone was always ringing, visitors were knocking on the door and being ushered into Dad's study, which was the classic smoke-filled room. And plots were being hatched, plots to reform the Victorian branch of the ALP or to transform Australia. It was the same job. My brothers and I got to meet some intriguing characters. In our living room, Nick, aged 10, took the liberty of asking Gough Whitlam if he hated Sir John Kerr. <laughs> well, Nick, said Gough, as a good Christian, one shouldn't hate anyone. But Gough, Nick replied, what about as a bad Christian? <laughs> In the 60s and 70s, the ALP was not so much a party as a cause, and a doomed one, it often seemed. In the wisdom of some in the party, the reason why Labor was unelectable and the Liberals born to rule was that Australians were hopelessly conservative and ignorant. My father never believed that. He loved Australia, and he thought that if the ALP could come to its senses and change, Australians would come to their senses too. The road was long, though. In the 1961 federal election, he ran for the then Blue Ribbon Liberal seat of Chisholm, a seat in which his mother happened to live. The sitting member was Wilfred Kent Hughes, a pillar of the establishment, and Dad was predictably slaughtered. At the declaration of the poll, Kent Hughes stood up and said in patrician tones, it was a fair fight. In his speech, Dad replied, it was neither fair nor a fight. <laughs> I gained a swing of one. My mother. <laughs> a snippet from one of my favourite eulogies. It's James Button speaking at the state funeral for his father, Senator John Button, on the 15th of April 2008. And it's an absolute treat to find this one. I didn't think there was any audio. But James directed me to the right people at the ABC. And here it is. And it's brilliant. So James is my guest. And he's a fantastic guest talks about speech writing he wrote speeches for kevin rudd he, he talks about labor gossip and stories and yarns he grew up with the likes of keating and whitlam and john kane and other titans of the labor movement in his dad's office at the front of their house and he's a fantastic storyteller himself this is a great chat we got a new sponsor thank you doc play DocPlay is part of the Madman umbrella, and it is a streaming service. It's all documentary. So if you are sick of the same old titles on the same old streaming services, give this one a go. It's my favorite. I love documentaries. I make documentaries. Sometimes find that the offerings on Netflix are pretty pedestrian. Sometimes they feel like those cheap history channel voiceover-driven docos about Hitler. Well, Doc Play is nothing like that. There's amazing docos. I love the one about John Belushi called Belushi. That's a brilliant hour and a half. There's one about the history of Rolling Stone magazine. I think it's a six-parter. It was a brilliant investigation of rock and roll and counterculture and the birth of Rolling Stone in the 1960s and 70s. And the one I've most recently watched is the, the epic, the Ken Burns epic on country music. That's up there on DocPlay as well. So join up to DocPlay. You can do that with a 14-day free trial. And then it's $7.99 a month thereafter, which puts it on the cheaper end of the streaming services. Visit DocPlay.com. 
com, and if you can, tell them that you found them via Speakola. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speakola. I may not get there with you, that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to this September edition of the Speak Ola podcast. Spring in the air. Here in Melbourne, I am tackling metre-high weeds in every bed, systematically, bed by bed, at war with thistles. But amongst the weeds, both literally and metaphorically, I have found some beautiful flowers. And in this case, it is this episode of the Speakola podcast, How I Loved This Chat with James Button. James Button, he's an author. He wrote the book Speechless. A Year in My Father's Business, which was about his year working in Canberra for Kevin Rudd and the Prime Minister's Department. It ends up being, I think, the greatest book ever written as a tribute to the Australian Public Service, which sounds boring, but this is also a memoir. He talks about his relationship with his dad, the famous Senator John Button, legendary Labor figure. The book was written after John Button's death, and so James is reminiscing about that father-son relationship and and also the tragedies in his dad's life which he talks about a fair bit in the interview that you're about to listen to. James has also written a book about the Geelong footy club called Comeback. He was once the editor of the Age Opinion page and Letters page and in fact he gave me my first ever writing column at the Age. I think it was a summer column in 1998 or 1999 and I've always appreciated that. Thank you, James. And in fact, I'm still writing columns. I've got back to it this year. I started a Substack, and a Substack is just a fancy platform name for a newsletter or blog. And each week I'm writing a piece, sometimes about family life and in particular disability parenting. I've got a son who has cerebral palsy, so there was one piece written about his grandpa's present of a trip through the Hawthorne Banner at the Hawthorne Collingwood game, which I thought was a, a lovely story to relate. And and also the Premier, Dan Andrews, came and visited his school. And so I wrote a piece about Jack asking to go up the front to meet the Premier and going in for a hug at the end, which again, hopefully, is a bit of a heartwarming story. You can find my sub stack through my Twitter handle, at by Tony Wilson. You can look it up on Substack if you write Good One Wilson. And I'll also put the link there in the show notes. But now it's time to have my interview with a great man of speeches. He's been a terrific speechwriter here in Australia. He gave a seminar to the MPs who have just been elected to the Australian Parliament. He went up to Canberra and talked to them about their first speeches and how to make their first speech or maiden speeches 
better. So he got that gig. He is something of a speech expert. And although the focus of this chat is going to be his own eulogy for his dad, we will talk a bit generally about speeches as well because he's got some terrific insights. Here he is, James Button. Well, as you know, I love a great eulogy on Speakola, and I believe this is a great eulogy that we're going to talk about today. So thanks for coming on, James Button. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. James, you gave me my break into <laughs> journalism. You gave me a summer column in 1998 <laughs> or 1999 when you were editor of the Age Letters page. So thank you for that. And I, I remember it well, and I, I don't know if it was part of your column, Tony, but around that time you wrote a piece about the 10th anniversary of the 1999 Grand Final, which later turned into a book from you. And I, I can remember I had a love-hate relationship with that article because I followed you along so absolutely uh, remember it well James tell us about your dad I mean this the great thing about this speech is I think we get a real sense of your dad so give me the earliest memories this sort of big figure this towering figure in Australian politics what are the the baby memories you've got of him baby memories he dad was somebody who was both very busy and very focused on his career and and on politics but also deeply in our lives I grew up with uh, there were three boys I was the oldest a family of five that in the 1960s I'm born in 1961 so by the late 60s when I'm starting to become aware of things and dad is getting my father is getting very involved in Labor Party politics and what you got to understand Tony we have a Labor government in Australia now and in Victoria but when I was growing up, Labor never won anything. We lost everything, you know. Menzies and the Liberals had been in power forever. In Victoria, Henry Bolte had been in power. And Labor was this kind of, seemed like this failed show, but it was also this dream that Australia could be better, you know. And my father was deeply, he loved Australia, sort of, deeply patriotic, but believed the place was kind of mediocre because of the governments that ran it. And so there was this kind of dream about that the Labor Party could help create a better Australia. And I can remember, you know, my dad had a study in our house, and they're all always blokes in those days. There were never women. Blokes coming in and out of that study, lots of cigarette smoke, you know, the door shut. But um, very exciting, you know, very kind of heady times with this sense that one day Labor could get into power and of course they did get into power in with Gough Whitlam in 1972 and my dad and others had been involved in reforming the Victorian ALP to make that a possibility and you know it was it was a it was a great time to be a kid and you start in that smoky study it's the first paragraph of your eulogy for your dad and and the story relates to Gough Whitlam and that's quite amazing isn't it to have Gough Whitlam in your state. Were you 12 or 13? He's Prime Minister. He's turning up at your house. Is- I think I was even younger than that. I, I think I was probably... He was leader of the opposition. And I remember this huge figure. I was in bed. And this huge figure comes into the room with my parents. And, you know, I sort of get out of bed in my PJs and meet this great figure who is just, like, vast. You know, like a sort of ruckman, you know. And I remember being kind of awed awed by him and uh, that was the presence he had 
And a bit later, when he was opposition leader again after they lost in 1975, he and Margaret came to our house and I don't know if it's in the speech, but my brother Nick, who was much younger, sat on Goff's lap and he said to Goff, he said, uh, Goff, do you hate John Kerr? And Goff said, well, Nick, as a Christian, as a good Christian, you shouldn't hate anyone. And Nick said, well, but what about as a bad Christian? <laughs> and, you know, Goff so... Goff would have appreciated I, I the wit of, a, of, a, I, I, of an eight-year-old? I, I, I think he did. He, he, once, he, was, a very, he was a funny guy. He, um, and my parents later divorced and he ran into my mum somewhere and he said, uh, he said, hello, Marge. He said... I haven't yet met your replacement. <laughs> so, you know, he, he was funny. And, uh, yeah, so, so there were these kind of figures. John Kane was somebody who was a good friend of my dad's and I knew him well. Bill Hayden is another person who was close to my father. And my brothers and I quickly developed a view about politicians. There were the ones who sort of pretended to be interested in the kids, but we're always looking over your shoulder to see what was going on in the room. And then there were the ones who actually sat down and, and paid attention to you. And they were the ones that we liked. Well, you did a great job. And anyone who's trying to write a speech should look at this speech as, I think, an archetype for making everything a story. There's never a point where you say, my dad was great at engaging us in fun games. You say, we played murderer in the dark and he would... Um, growl a scary kind of rhyme. <laughs> he, he did. Do you remember the poem still? I, I do, I do. He, <laughs> the, the poem, he, he was good at making up little ditties and rhymes and one of them was, um, the grip of steel you soon will feel. The human vice is made of ice. It crushes boys like Savaloys. And, you know, this would have us sort of shrieking with both terror and laughter at the same time. So he was, you know, he was a guy who was both absent at some level just because of his work, but also, as I say, not absent. You know, he was, he was present. And uh, it was a... I have very happy memories of that of our childhood, although there were some difficulties which we'll probably get to soon because they relate to the speech. Yeah, and, and I guess on the positive side, again, he, he did an activity that I also did with my brother. I hope my brother gives as nice a eulogy for me as <laughs> you gave for your dad, but we used to set up the video and I would bend over and put cushions on my back and <laughs> we'd try to get my brother as high up on hangers as screamers. we could have. Screamers. You, them, yeah. you played that as well? Yeah, we did. And the word hanger <laughs> didn't exist in those days. They were screamers. They were, uh, that's true. They, they, they were screamers. And, um, yeah, my friend Graham, who lived three doors up the street, would uh, would come in and one of us would do the high, the high yeah. loping. I don't think the head drop punts. <laughs> that's how old I am. It was a sort of flat Peter Hudson sort of punt in the air and... And and Dad would bend over, and we would take um, we'd take speckies on his back. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Getting to the other side, I guess. There, and not many. And you're right. It, it, he he was a complicated figure, and I guess a lot of eulogies don't attempt to capture that complication. And and your speech, I think, stands out for the fact that you did have a bit of a go at it. I mean, you talked about him being absent and also being grumpy or moody. I think was yeah. another word you used. Yeah, I wanted to try and capture the complexity of him. I think it's important at funerals to tell the truth about somebody, which doesn't mean that you say everything, but I think it's respectful. We are all flawed. Every one of us is flawed and, and has parts of us that are, that are broken, you know, and in, at a funeral, I don't think we should sweeten that up 
you know, too much. It, there's a balance to this. Uh, I really loved my father and he was a terrific father, um, but he was moody and could be, you know, very absorbed in his, in his own world. And I wanted to say that, and he would have absolutely acknowledged that, you know, that he, that he was like that. And I went to a funeral just this week, Tony, and um, a good friend of mine, his father was a difficult guy, you know, and I was struck by how they managed to get, he managed in his eulogy, got that into it, but without a hint of reproach, you know, it didn't have any reproach, it just said this is what he was like, you know, but here are the things about him that I really valued, and I think, you know, at, at funerals, that's the way they should go. And I've read your speechless book, which is a, a, an amazing book. It's about your year working, or you thought you were going to be working for Kevin Rudd, but you ended up down the road with the public service yep. in the premier's department, in the prime minister's department, writing speeches. But this book ends up being a lot about your dad's business, the business of politics, and your recollections of the time. And and we really get a picture in that book of his. I guess his solitary nature, the, his deep thinking nature. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what's sort of really the extraordinary experience that I had in writing that book is that when I started to write it, I really didn't plan to write a sort of half memoir of my father. That just wasn't on my screen. But as I got into it, a friend of mine who I used to work with at The Age, who's been a great mentor to me, said... He said, you can't just write a book about going up to Canberra for a year and what you saw. He said, you bring history to this place. You know, your father was there for 20 years nearly. And, and I realised that he was right. And so what started as a kind of, you know, my year in Canberra book became actually, for me, much more significantly about my father and my relationship with my father. And I remember one day I was writing about... Um, about my father, and I need to say here that, uh, and again, this comes back to the eulogy that I gave at his uh, memorial service, but I lost my brother David. Um, he, he died of a heroin overdose in 1982, uh, about eight or nine months before Dad became a federal minister. So here's the event that my father's been working to for 20 years, which is to be a minister in a federal Labor government. His whole life has been directed towards that. And about nine months before that happens, his second son dies. And I realised in writing that book that really David's death took so much of the joy out of politics for, for my dad. And even though he, you know, he enjoyed his 10 years as a minister, he worked hard at it, he was good at it, something kind of died for him. And, and I realised that I, I didn't understand that until I wrote that book and there was a day when I was writing that chapter when I was literally as I was writing going oh my god oh I've not understood this you know and then I'd write a bit more and I was feeling this kind of you know like physical sort of um, almost shaking when I was having this understanding that was very was both It was both um, illuminating and powerful for me because I was understanding something, but also deeply sad because he was dead now. You know, and I so I couldn't. My father was 
was gone, so I was unable to share this understanding that I just gained through writing. That's the thing that writing can do. You know, there you are on your own with the, you know, with the um, computer. And, and so yeah. was was it an understanding of his personality? Of this, you used the paragraph, I think, in your moody paragraph about him. You, you talked about, you know, that he was almost un- ungraspable. What did Keating say? It was like trying to like wrestling with a column of smoke. You know, yeah, Keating yeah. had this great insight into which Keating spoke at his. Um, at his uh, 70th birthday, we had a 70th birthday for him, nearly six years before he died. Great night. Didn't think Keating had come, but we invited him and, you know, he turned up. And he, he wasn't slotted into the, um, the event, any of the speeches, but, I, but someone suggested that I ask him to speak. And he, you know, asking Paul Keating to speak is like asking a duck to jump into water, you know. And he got up and he spoke for 45 minutes. And, and he, you know, told everybody how he fixed the Australian economy. And, and then he suddenly remembered where he was and he'd say, oh, and John was part of all that. <laughs> and, but anyway, in that speech, he had this brilliant line where he said, uh, he said, uh, I'd invite John over to my office and he'd come in and he'd have a coffee with his water, you know, and that was a great little <laughs> observation because Dad always had that glass of water with his coffee and he said, I'd say, John, we need to do this, we need to do that, and he'd go, on, oh, I don't know, maybe. He said, it was like wrestling with a column of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so he had great, you know, it, so, but I thought what Keating said there was kind of a good perception of my father. John Cain described him as kind of Delphic, you know. He'd be sometimes hard to read, you know, and... Maybe I didn't read him fully. I think I didn't read him fully either in some ways until, until he was gone. You know, when I was able through writing to understand some things about him that I hadn't properly understood before. And so you're talking about a depression that settled over him that he never really... A melancholy, a sorrow. I, I, I wouldn't use the clinical term depression, um, but he, you know, a few times every year he would really hit the whiskies quite hard and... Um, you know, and and then he would often just cry about David, and you know, um, he's spoken about this. He's, he did an interview with George Negus at some point in which he talked about his feeling that had he not been a politician, he might have been able to do something to save David. You know, and I actually am not sure that's true. I think he possibly was far too harsh on himself in that way. You know, I. Who knows what, why things, why life takes the direction it does, you know. But, but he certainly had that view that he was in some way responsible for David's death. And that's a view I've also had, you know. When, when you lose someone in a family, there is just the, the sort of trail of suffering and remorse that it leaves is really hard to describe to to people haven't had that experience but I you know he of all our family members more than my mother who was very present in David's life in many ways had that feeling of, of incredible and at times crippling remorse you know and I, th- I do think it shaded his his political career after that. And you didn't talk about David in the speech. No. He's a big feature in these chapters, in these personal chapters of the book. Was that a deliberate decision? Did you were you tempted to go down that line and talk about these things? I mean, I, I see it as a, a superbly crafted piece of writing, and I didn't know about the David story when I first came across mm. this speech. Mm. But what what was the thinking about David mm. when you were writing the eulogy? Yeah. So. Um... <laughs> I regret leaving David out of that out of that speech because I just said before that speeches should present the whole 
picture of somebody. I think a few things there. I think the sort of understanding that I've described to you just, just before, I didn't really have at that point fully. But I certainly knew that, he, that, that David's death had had a big impact on my father. I, th- I think that what happened was that I, in, in the run-up to Dad's death, he, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about six months before he died. And in the last month, two months before he died, I just got back from, I'd been working in the UK for three years, spent, was with him every day. In that time, he never talked about David at all. And, and I a few times thought, should I bring this up? And I thought, no, why bring it up? You know, like, he's, it's, it doesn't seem to be on his mind. That's not where he is. You know, why bring up these things? And, you know, I think in a way, David wasn't part of our, our mind at that moment. And, and I carried on that, that uh, thinking into his funeral, you know, into Dad's funeral. And what happened was that I, uh, I sent the eulogy to a, a good friend of mine who lives in Spain, and he and his... Our wife had lost their son uh, to a suicide. And my friend said, I really liked your eulogy, but I wonder why you didn't mention David. You know, and this was, um, this was significant for him because of his own loss. And I remember reading and having this sort of shock. Yeah, why didn't I mention David? You know? And so this all is all in the book, as you, as you say. But that sort of made me go back and think that was the missing part in that speech. You know, that's the, that's the one thing. I, I was proud of the eulogy, but that's the one thing I regret. And your mother gets a, a mention, you're talking sort of glowingly about their ability to keep a functioning family happening despite the, the breakup in 1983. Yeah, it was very important. I, the, the joke, which is actually probably true, was that sort of um, dad left on a Wednesday and, and was around for tea on Sunday. <laughs> 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 and we really did stay kind of, we did stay tight as a family despite, despite a, a, lot of, a lot of sorrow at that time. And, and I imagine you said that your mother had more to do with David and probably dealt with the the ramifications of the heroin addiction and other things. And it was was there a part of your decision related to leaving David out? Was part of that a decision related to your mum? Did did you not want her to? No, no, I don't think so. No, I think she. Um, I don't think that was it. I, I think it's the, it's what I described to you. She had my mother's name is Marge. She had, I think, come to terms. She'd gone on her own journey, very separate to my father's. And because they divorced at that time, they didn't really share... Uh, their, their own ways of dealing with David's death were, were quite different, you know. And she became very interested in Buddhism and meditation and that was her way of dealing with it, I think. And, you know, she, she wrote it. Uh, there's a book called Outrageous Misfortune, which is about people who have suffered, uh, you know, extreme... Uh, like who have suffered tragedies in their lives, she wrote a chapter for that book, and you know she just talks about how she, you know, how she dealt with it. But she never felt the remorse, as I said, that my father felt because, yeah, as I say, she was deeply in, involved in David's life and ha- had, you know, I think felt that, you know, she had tried everything that she could to to sort, you know, out his out his issues, and you know that that doesn't mean she was not devastated by it, she was, but I just think it was a different path for her than for Dad, who was away, who was away so much, you know, and that was the political life, you know. And what about the gathering of the stories? I guess they're more the adult stories that come next, um, almost post-political career, I guess. You talk about 
his cooking that gets yep. a mention. Yep. Um, you talk about his love of the Geelong Football Club, his yep. ability to gaze longingly at yep. Gary Ablett's thighs in a way that made you, oh, that might not be quite appropriate, <laughs> <Yeah>. Dad. <laughs> Sending letters to the yep. Geelong coach. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So would mm. you have just... Do you remember how you wrote the speech? Did you, would you have just made a list of mm. the stuff that's funny about your dad or interesting about your dad? Do you remember what the writing process was? Yeah, I do actually. I, I wrote it in an afternoon and I remember it was... So he died on a Tuesday and the, the wheels move very quickly when this happens and we, it was a decision, we made a decision and to hold a sort of family funeral for him on the following Monday and then there would be a memorial service like a state memorial service on the tuesday so this is very short timeline and there's a whole bunch of big wheels sort of turning then and i didn't get a chance to get to it till sunday and i'm thinking i've now have sort of 36 hours before i've got to stand up and and give this and i didn't have a lot of space either i only had eight to ten minutes to speak it wasn't like i could go 25 minutes and so i just sat down and i and i just remembered that the thing that was so striking from my childhood was this sense of dad as this person who brought the heady outside world into our house, you know. And so he'd be talking about his adventures within the Labor Party, trying to reform this kind of very sort of hierarchical... It, the party was really very difficult nut to, break, to crack into at that time and a lot of funny stories... Um, we were all fascinated by the adventure of getting Labor elected. You know, we used to go out and hand out. We grew up in Hawthorne, so it was quite. It was a, sort of Hawthorne wasn't as privileged then as it is today. So, so it was quite a our local area, our local booth actually voted Labor, but but it was a very you know sort of middle class area, and so there'd be a lot of people who voted Liberal. A lot of older ladies who didn't like us putting Labour pamphlets in their letterboxes. They'd come out shouting at us. It's all very exciting, you know, <laughs> very exciting for a kid. And so Dad brought all that, you know. And then, um, and back to David, one of the things I, I wanted to convey was, I, I think, that his post-political years, despite the sorrow that I've talked about, there was a lot of good times in there for him, you know, and a lot of that was going to the footy with me and my brother Nick, um, we, we had a lot of close times together and um, his cooking, he learned to cook. He'd never been a cook before. Growing up in that very old patriarchal Australia, of the, you know, yeah. you know, mum cooked everything and so he learned to cook. Uh, got into writing? He got into writing. He wrote three books and a quarterly essay, quarterly essay on the Labor Party. I used to love his footy pieces. Oh, uh, he loved writing about footy. You mentioned Gary Ablett. He once, you know, he was uh, kind of involved with the footy club in some ways and he'd go in the rooms and uh, he once said to Gary Ablett, Gary Ablett's just come off the ground, probably kicked eight, you know, and he, he said, uh, he did, probably didn't know what to say to Gary, so he said, you know, Gary, you're worried about, you know, the wet weather grounds coming and, you know, getting into winter, wet weather grounds, you know, and Ablett goes, uh, it's a winter game, John. <laughs> this is like sort of you know wisdom of you know like a sort of zen zen wisdom <laughs> and uh yeah so all that was great fun for us and he um in the late 90s he began a relationship with a woman called joan grant who'd been a, a um a family friend for a long time and joan's a wonderful woman and they 
they had a great 10 years together. And Joan's, Joan's still close to, to us and to my mum. She's good friends with my mum. And they had 10 great years together, yeah. And you, you got to sort of convey his caring nature, you know, that he, he looked after her when Joan he, had a tough time with it, menin, meningitis, was it? Meningococcal, yeah. yeah. And, and she nearly died. And he really was just an incredible partner to her in that time when she was in a coma for weeks. And he just would sit there with her, you know, and... Uh, Eventually, miraculously, she just came out of the coma unaffected. So uh, I have great gratitude for that time in his life. You know, it, it, you know when he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it's a, it's an absolute killer. You know, you don't. And he just I remember him saying in his once he said, oh, "I just wish I could get five more years." You know, and so he was seventy five. He had a lot to contribute still. You know, and I think I think there was uh, that was tough. You know, that was certainly tough for him. And did he talk to you a bit in the dying period about life and about his life and regrets? Uh, and you said he didn't really talk about David at that time. No, he didn't. Um, we didn't talk too much about it, Tony. You know, he was he was very brave in the way he faced death. Um, very brave. He looked at it square in the eye. Knew it was coming. But I think he also found it easiest to deal with it by not talking too much. And that, that, that had been his, I think, that was the fairly austere male world he'd been brought up in. He'd grown up in Ballarat, the son of a, uh, son of a Presbyterian minister, who I think was a good bloke, but also in the way that um, used to happen in that time, used to, used to hit my father and... Uh, I think that was something that had a quite a damaging impact on him. I think, yeah. And um, he he was very good, Dad, when he was under pressure, of sort of just going into this kind of uh, crouch, you know, defensive crouch. And I think that's the way he dealt with his imminent death. And so it, it wasn't really a time of with some exceptions, with some exceptions of reminiscing too much, you know. You say that his greatest, I think he said that the hardest thing he ever did was to tell some factory workers or to tell a whole lot of people they were going to lose their jobs in, yeah. a, in a country town. Yeah. Did he ever talk about the greatest thing that ever happened? The, 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 I guess no one's better at it than Paul Keating talking about how you know, the, the economic miracle <laughs> yeah. that was, uh, was all me. Paul's, yeah. <laughs> Paul's um, doing. Yeah. Did John have any of that in him? I reckon, um, you know, that thing about... He'd grown up in a sort of... He'd been an interesting background. His father had been quite poor and had been a, a, an English migrant, but did well, did well, became a... Um, studied here, came out here, one of 12 kids, maybe 11, you know, came out here to try and make his fortune, became a Presbyterian minister... Married a well-to-do woman from Tasmanian, Tasmanian farming country. And so Dad grew up in this kind of slightly, I think, difficult family thing where there was a sense that the father, who was a very intelligent guy, wasn't perhaps good enough for the, for the, you know, the daughter of this well-to-do family. And he developed this kind of, I think early on, a very sort of romantic identification with working-class people. He became a labour lawyer you know representing unionists and in factories went into a lot of factories and australian factories in the 60s 
in the 70s were pretty tough places, you know, uh, not high skilled the way they are today. But many of them was very big, you know, manufacturing was one in four uh, workers in those days. But he, he very much, when Hawke said to him when they got into power, you can choose your ministry, if people thought being a lawyer, he might pick attorney general. He said, no, I want industry. And, and the reason he said that, I think, was because he believed that, that those... He'd, he'd been in those factories since he was a young lawyer, you know, and he believed that they could be better and that that sort of was his patriotism in a way because he thought Australia was smart and he thought Australia could match it and should match it with the, you know, titans of industry, the Japanese, the Swedes. He really admired the Japanese and the Swedes because they were smart. They used their brains. They used their people well. And he wanted, that, he wanted to do that for Australia. So I think if you were to ask him what he was most proud of, I think, in politics, I think he would say that, you know. But he kind of believed in... He believed, you know, things like, you know... That government, you know, they introduced a capital gains tax. They introduced Medicare, you know. They, things that... Big changes that no government really does anymore. You know, I think he really thought that sort of country that was kind of smart and resourceful and used its initiative but also looked after people, you know, was was the kind of place he wanted to live in. And the speech, you finish it with a this image of him watching you. It's a really lovely fatherly thing that you and Nick are walking off and you look back and he's still looking at you and it's a, you know, it's a bit of a tearjerker even now, isn't it, James? I'm sure. Oh, uh, well, it's... It's, you've got that, that's just a if you're trying to tell someone how to write a eulogy it's just like well be be a good writer isn't it that's a that's a beautiful image and it, and it comes from many many years of skill with images and words right we'll show people things you know um uh the, the thing that i found powerful about that moment when um so we've been at the footy uh nick my brother nick dad and i had been it was the end of the year uh, Geelong hadn't made the finals again. It's a bit like the Labor Party. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. We were always going to make the finals one day, and we eventually did. But And Dad would always do this. It was the end of the year. We'd won the last game, and we all were in his front room with a whiskey, and he drew an oval on a bit of paper, and he said, here's our, you know, here's our you know, final five or whatever it was in that team for next year. And we all thought, what a load of bullshit. <laughs> we're not going to make the finals. But, you know, he'd drawn it all out. You know, and we had a, it was a good moment, you know, and... Uh, we, Nick and I walked to the gate and we walked down the street to, towards the tram and 100 metres down the street I looked back and he was still at the gate looking after us, you know, looking in our direction. And that was probably five years after David had died and so we had a sense of him, Nick and I, as a vulnerable person, you know. And the thing that was striking about that was that he couldn't voice this but... It was something about the voicelessness of him just standing there looking at looking looking you know after us um, in both senses of the word you know that was very powerful for me and so I, that's why I decided to end the eulogy with that with that story and, and I guess it I could have said that he was that sort of person that I just described but I think the image shows it because yeah. you can see it, you know, it's something that's... that's yeah, you know, it's, a it's writing 101. It's the best, most important advice you can give anyone is the story, not the didactic statement. Yeah, yeah. you can you can have the didactic statement, but it's got to be built on, on the story, you know, it's... Yeah. 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 And, and, and sometimes you don't need the didactic statement either, the story is enough. You know, I, I don't think I said what I just said about him struggling for... I, I might have earlier in the speech, but I think just to show it was... Um, 
what I hoped to show was that it was something of the sort of person he was. And state funerals and big fusses and a presumably a pretty lengthy program of lots of speakers. Can you tell us anything about delivery and the day? Yeah, well, um, so it was held in a church in... Um, so Dad had grown up as in a, in a um, church family, really. He'd gone to church every, every Sunday because his father had been a minister and, you know, he wasn't a believer, but those things don't die. You know, it's once a Catholic. You know, they're yeah. always with you. And so I think, you know, and he, he helped to plan his own funeral and he wanted it to be in a church. He wanted to belt out a few of the old hymns, you know, which we did. I think, did we sing Jerusalem? I can't remember. But, you know, those old sort of yeah. hymns from the kind of Presbyterian Methodist side, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so John Cain spoke. Bill Hayden spoke. Um, Jim Kennan, who was Attorney General here in Victoria, and very, a close friend of Dad's and very funny guy, spoke. My brother Nick read a poem written by a man called Peter Gebhardt, who was an old friend of Dad's. Uh, Morag Fraser spoke, who had been the editor of Eureka Street and good friend of Dad's, and I spoke. And Peter Norden, who'd been a, even though it was a, a uniting church, Peter Norden's a former Catholic priest, but another friend, a friend played an important role. Uh, and, and so what I remember about it, Tony, was the sense of, I just remember the Labor Party aspect of it. You know, Julia Gillard came, Kevin Rudd couldn't come because he was visiting Kate Blanchard who just had a baby. <laughs> anyway, that was his reason. You know? And uh, Paul Keating came uh, and Keating said afterwards, Keating saw it through a very political lens, you know, which I, I loved at the time. You know, he said, he said, the other lot, they couldn't put on a show like this. <laughs> you know, we're the ones with the stories in us, you know. And yeah. we, we went to up to Ormond College um, for tea afterwards and Keating held a group of about six of us, eight of us spellbound as he told the story about how he solved the world. You know? And he said, you know, he said, he, he tells that he had, he had basically advised Tony Blair on the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, and he said, I told Gordon Brown, Gordon had just become British Prime Minister. I said to Gordon, Gordon, stop messing about with fixing the water supply in Darfur. <laughs> Find three things that matter. You know, obviously fixing the water supply does matter, but not for a British Prime Minister, not top of mind for a British Prime Minister. He said, Find three things that matter and just do them. They won't remember you for anything else, just those three things. And it was, it was just an incredible lesson in politics. That's <laughs> you, right. You know. so, and, and I guess he, he picked Indigenous affairs, right? He yeah. probably didn't know he, we, we didn't know no, he was incredible. going But it's incredible, like, you know, because there's no, you know, given the, you know, at, in 1992, there was no political capital for him in doing Mabo. But he said, you know, I, I've heard Bill Kelty say, Kelty came to him once after he became Prime Minister. Bill Kelty, the head of secretary of the ACTU, came to him and said, Paul, I've got your agenda, regional Australia. He said, regional Australia is hurting, you know, it really needs a big, big program. And Keating looked at him and said, that's a good agenda, Bill, but we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> what we're going to do, until we fix up our relations with Indigenous people in this country, we're not going anywhere. So that's what we're doing. And Kelty said he was right. And that was a long time after, you know. And so, you know, it's easy to glamorise the past. You know, they were all flawed individuals too. But I do believe that generation got into 
politics with a desire to change things. And, and they did. And I think Keating's decision to take on Mabo to, to give the Redfern statement where he was the first Prime Minister who said, we committed the murders, you know, we brought the alcohol, you know, we poisoned the waterholes. You know, that just... You, you want language in politics? There's no, you know... Um, we had a um, you know positive plan for engaging all <laughs> stakeholders. You know, and, you know, it just said we did it. You know. We committed the murders. We committed the murders. You know, you know, you know we poisoned the waterholes. You know, yeah. So I, and it I was our inability to 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 ask the most basic question: What would it be like if this were done to me? Human you know, empathy. Yeah. Human empathy. You know, Don Watson, his speechwriter. You know, brilliant writer. And Keating, man, Keating, that just that courage to stand up and say all those things. Yeah, we, I did an episode on on that speech with Don Watson, and he talked about active language. And you're, you're a speechwriter, and you t- teach people how to write speeches, and have written for prime ministers and everyone. Um, what's the? He said active language was almost the first thing he said. You know mm. that we committed the murders. Yes. You know, instead of saying the murders were committed by us, which yes. is passive language. Yes. Yeah. He said that active yeah. language is a thing that grabs people yes. have you got i mean i don't want to turn this into uh, you know the, the speeches you write for kevin rudd but what would you say to someone trying to write a speech what are the basic bits of advice if you had to give three yeah well one is um i, I think active language is a effect of knowing exactly what you want to say and having an intense desire to say it right so on your you you put me on to um, the speech of Mary Black, the 20-year-old, the youngest member of the House of Commons in the UK, whose speech is so kind of... She's nervous, she's 20-year-old in this august place, but she gets up and, and she starts with this really generous acknowledgement of her predecessor, the person she's just beaten, Douglas Alexander, a Labour person. She's, she's with the Scottish Nationalist Party. And, you know, in that debate, I'd probably be more on the Labor side. But, but I really admire the way she gives this very generous tribute to Alexander. And then she hoes into Labor, <laughs> British Labor, and says, this is what you're not doing. This is what you need to do for our people. You know, and she tells a story about one of her own constituencies. So I think the thing that makes a great speech is, one, a clear sense of your audience. Who is listening to this? Who is in the room? Connect with them. Only connect with them. In the, in the end, you, the speaker, don't count. The audience is what counts. And it's why so many speeches start, Tony, with... You know, Roosevelt always started his speeches with, my friends, you know. Mm. First thing he said, you know, it's in Shakespeare, friends, Romans, countrymen. You're up there on the stage, the audience is down there, you've got to find a way to bring yourself down and connect with those people. That's the first thing. And the second thing is have something to say. You know, what is it I really want to say? What am I desperate to say? And then third, the words to say it. And if you really find the thing you want to say, I think the words to say it will come out really clearly because they'll be straight from the, you know, from the heart and from the kind of the energy centre of wherever you're drawing this from. I don't think in the end, the problem with complex language and jargon is that it basically... It hides meaning, you know. It, it when 
I think all great truths ultimately are simple. You know, you look at the speeches that we admire so much. Julia Gillard, when she stands up and gives the, um, you know, the misogyny speech, there's no jargon, you know, whereas there might have been in some of her other speeches. You know, Lincoln, obviously, famously, 272 words at the Gettysburg Address. No one remembers the guy who spoke for two hours before him. Yeah. Churchill standing up and saying, you know, in one of the speeches, the news from France is bad. You know, first yeah. sentence, you know, honesty. Martin Luther King, my favourite speech. It's just direct, just direct. And the I Have a Dream speech in 1963, just, yeah. And you told me that I, I, I've dug up or we've dug up through the ABC archives, which we're going to play in a moment, the audio of your speech. And, and you, you haven't heard it since the day it was delivered. And you said you didn't really want to hear it. There yeah. Wasn't, that, t- t- talk about that. Oh, with- look, I, I guess I... Um, with these things, if I do a radio, if I go and, you know, sometimes I've gone on radio to talk about books or TV sometimes and I tend to just walk away from them because I don't want to, you know, I don't know, it's just a, I don't, I don't want to see how bad I thought, that whether I, I was or not, how bad I thought I was, you know. Oh. And so, but I, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely listen on your, you've got one more listener for wow. Speak Cola. You know. Our ratings will be <laughs> yeah. through the roof. No, I can promise you I have had a listen and, and your delivery is excellent. There is, I think there's one stumble we can probably edit it out. I remember just before I was about to go on, I suddenly had this overpowering urge to go to the loo. Right? And I said to my brother Nick and Joan, sitting in the front row of the church, could I just go out and go to the loo? And they looked at me and said, no. <laughs> Once I was up there, I completely forgot that. <laughs> so um, it, was a, it was a really big day. It was a big day and I felt that sadness that I think probably a lot of people feel at funerals because it was a funeral, so you know, my father's coffin was there. I remember thinking, Jesus, I w- Dad, I wish you could hear all this. We should have funerals before people die you know, because I think he would have been really kind of moved to hear the sort of things that people said about him. Well, hats off to Marie Cardi, I think, started a salon type event that's called Better Off Said, which Mm. is uh, is eulogies for the living. Yes. It's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great idea. And I think my favourite speech that day was John Keynes, and we've lost John now. He's, He's died as well. But what I loved about it was that I knew John from when I was a kid, you know, I knew him well. But he, again, he was one of those slightly unapproachable or not quite graspable political figures. But when my parents, my parents split up in the 70s and then they got back together again and then they divorced in the early 80s. But after they split up the first time, John remembered talking to the footy one day and he was an awkward old school bloke. But he, we were sitting at the footy and he put his arm around me and he said, how are you going? And I just... It really moved me at the time as a little kid, you know, and I always loved John after that. And so he got up and he told the history of all the struggle that he and his little group and my father had been in, John, other people uh, had been, they were called the participants, so a group of people who were determined to reform the Labor Party and make it electable. And that was our struggle. And so for John to retell that and, and give a bit of a portrait of Dad at that time was 
It was great for me. I loved it. Oh, excellent. Well, there's a eulogy for John Kane that's up on Speakola. There's your eulogy for John Button. There's Paul Keating's eulogy for Michael Gordon is a beautiful speech. I've got it that is. up on yeah. on Speakola. So if you are writing one, you really this one's one of my favourites. It's one of the first speeches I ever put up. Can I say one more thing about eulogies? You don't get to give many in your life, you know, which is a good thing, right? Hopefully, you don't get to give too many. It's such a opportunity, you know, and. One of the things that fascinates me about speeches, and it's why I love your site, is that all of us, speeches are are not something that are just for a few people. Nearly all of us at some point in our lives will be asked to give a speech at a wedding, a funeral, um, somebody's significant birthday, some other event, and it's a real chance. So we we focus a lot on the speeches of the great and the powerful, but what about the speeches of ordinary people? who, you know, that moment when someone puts a fork against the glass and you hear that yeah. tinkling or someone says, can I, have, can I have your attention, please? And the room falls quiet, you know. And the person who gets up to give the speech is often as nervous as hell. There's a great line in Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. And she, to me, she wrote the definitive book on writing speeches. It's called On Speaking Well. It's 100 pages long. Laugh out loud, funny. And she says... At the start of the book, you know, you're asked six months in advance to give a speech and you think six months from now, it'll be great. I'll be a different person. I'll smack it. You know, <laughs> as the speech gets closer, you start to feel this slowly rising nervousness. And until a week out from the speech, you're hoping that you'll this day have a major car accident. <laughs> Not so major that you're dead or maimed, but enough to stop you having to give the speech. So we're all nervous, but the audience is, is there willing you on and you know they want you to succeed and they they're with you you know and you can use that energy you know and a bit as Noonan says in her book a a bit of nerves a stumble little cough it's actually better Mm. than being too polished I've seen people who are too polished with speeches and you go the audience go okay you're really good at this great great double pirouette and backflip degree of difficulty nine you know but but it's those slightly awkward speeches that are the great speeches and that was part of the the thinking behind making speakola was well i was giving the eulogy for my friend chris daffy which is up there as well and i was trying to think of how to write it and there were eulogies around but there weren't many collections there wasn't sort of a place you could go and I thought I could make a place for people to go. And, and as you say, the thing that has been most enjoyable about the project is to not put a status on the speech has to... People say, well, this yeah. be good. Oh, mine won't be good enough to speak. Oh, no. No. They're, yeah. they're all good enough. It's a great idea, it, Tony. Yeah. You, you, it's an inspi- <laughs> it really is. An, it's going to sound like I'm just uh, blowing smoke rings at you, but it's an inspired idea. And it's great that all these speeches are collected in one, one place. Because... I don't think anyone else has done it. And, and I love the idea that you're mi- not putting status on speeches. Everybody has to give a speech at some point and y- you're reflecting that on your, on your podcast. Well, thank Inside. you, James. I, I love this one. Check it out. Thank you so much for all your time and your stories. My great pleasure. And, you know, here's to long live the good ship Spicola <laughs> <laughs> and all his sailing <laughs> James gave Speakola a beautiful endorsement there, a great plug. And if you want to help the site, 
We do now have our sponsor, DocPlay. Visit DocPlay.com and get yourself a subscription, a streaming service that is full of quality documentaries. But I do need listener support as well. The finances of podcasts are tricky to say the least. The sponsorships are in the 50s and hundreds of dollars, not the thousands. And so if listeners can get on board and spare even as little as three bucks a month, that keeps the podcast ticking along, makes me feel I'm not working for free. So if you love Speakola, do join the patron community. I think we're in the 50s now. You go to patreon.com forward slash Speakola and pick one of the tiers. There's the $3 tier, the $8 tier or the $20 tier per month. Or you can make a straight out one-time donation or monthly donation on the credit card and that is through speakola.com forward slash donate. All help appreciated. Well, it's time now for the speech of the week. This is golden audio. I love this speech. James says he hasn't listened to it, but I listened to it several times and enjoyed every one of them. It was delivered at a state memorial service for John Button by his son James Button on the 15th of April 2008 at St. Michael's Church in Collins Street, Melbourne. What I'm about to say is also on behalf of my brother Nick. It was exciting growing up around Dad. He brought the heady outside world into our house. The phone was always ringing, visitors were knocking on the door and being ushered into Dad's study, which was the classic smoke-filled room. And plots were being hatched, plots to reform the Victorian branch of the ALP or to transform Australia. It was the same job. My brothers and I got to meet some intriguing characters. In our living room, Nick, aged 10, took the liberty of asking Gough Whitlam if he hated Sir John Kerr. (laughs) Well, Nick, said Gough, as a good Christian, one shouldn't hate anyone. But Gough, Nick replied, what about as a bad Christian? In the 60s and 70s, the ALP was not so much a party as a cause, and a doomed one, it often seemed. In the wisdom of some in the party, the reason why Labor was unelectable and the Liberals born to rule was that Australians were hopelessly conservative and ignorant. My father never believed that. He loved Australia, and he thought that if the ALP could come to its senses and change, Australians would come to their senses too. The road was long, though. In the 1961 federal election, he ran for the then Blue Ribbon Liberal seat of Chisholm, a seat in which his mother happened to live. The sitting member was Wilfred Kent Hughes, a pillar of the establishment, and Dad was predictably slaughtered. At the declaration of the poll, Kent Hughes stood up and said in patrician tones, It was a fair fight. In his speech, Dad replied, It was neither fair nor a fight. (laughs) I gained a swing of one. My mother. (laughs) Dad told a lot of stories like this around the dinner table. Adventures seemed to happen to him, or else he had the storyteller's gift of turning ordinary life into adventures. Like the time in the 50s, he tried to smuggle himself into the Soviet Union with a delegation of Italian communists, but was detained at the border. As the Soviet guards on the train examined his passport with no visa, an Italian man, who later became a lifelong friend, leant over and whispered to him, 
Siberia. <laughs> he told these stories at our urging because our family was happiest when he was making us laugh. At night sometimes we would play murder in the dark. He would switch off all the lights in the house and we three boys would hide, screaming in excited terror as he boomed out one of his kooky poems. The grip of steel you soon will feel. It crushes boys to savaloys. <laughs> when we kicked a football in the yard, he spent hours assuming a bent-over position so that my friend Graham and I could climb on his back and take screamers. <laughs> but he was away a lot with work too, and even when around, he was often lost in thought. He could be a moody bugger, and cranky too. For us kids, he had an elusive quality. Part of him was a mystery, perhaps even to himself. John Cain described his utterances as Delphic. At Dad's 70th birthday party, Paul Keating said that arguing with John was like wrestling with a column of smoke. <clears throat> he also said last week that John was a political loner, and he was. His honesty helped to make him a loner, and being a loner helped to make him honest. I admired that side of him. When he was a minister, I once asked him about a crucial cabinet decision that had not yet been made public. I can't tell you, he said. It's not that I don't trust you, I do. But if it leaks and hawk eyeballs us one by one, I want to be able to look him right back and say I told no one. As a father, though often physically distant, he always kept us close. Whenever I travelled, he would demand a detailed itinerary, and I would wonder why, until I found myself in a far-flung corner of Mexico and one of his postcards, packed with news of home, turned up right on time at my hotel. Nick and I will never forget the deep friendship and fondness and love he and my mother Marge kept for each other. Despite their divorce in 1983, he still came round for tea most Sunday nights. There was never a sense that we were not a family. And I know that Dad had happy times with his second wife Dorothy and her daughters Kate and Jane, whom he helped to raise. The upside of Dad's terseness was that he was never windy. He never banged on about his achievements. After my partner May met him, she looked forward to hearing dinnertime tales of life at the molten core of politics. But although she and Dad had a very good relationship, he parried all her questions with one-line replies. When she asked him to name the hardest thing he had to do in politics, he said, going to country Victoria and being demonstrated against by textile workers who had lost their jobs. I know that unemployment was perhaps more than anything the thing that Dad hated most and affected him most deeply. And there's a family joke that um, when one of his nieces got married in 1992, he spent an oversized, it was the recession at that time, he spent an oversized chunk of the speech lamenting the um, state of unemployment in the country. <laughs> Only once saw him completely unbuttoned, if you'll pardon the pun. In 1989, he visited me in New York where I was living and we went to a bar in Greenwich Village to hear a 73-year-old blues player, Jay McShann, and his band. We got drunk, banged the table, clinked glasses with strangers, met Jay and the band, and at 3am had to be turfed out by the management into the freezing night. We had so much fun, we came back the next night and did it all exactly the same again. <laughs> we were turfed out again. <laughs> the only other place I saw my dad really let himself go was at the football. He was seriously, batterly obsessed by football and by the Geelong Football Club. More than once in the Geelong changing room, I caught Dad staring a little too intently at Gary Ablett's thighs. <coughs> Gary, Ab Gary Ablett Jr. can relax, it's Gary Ablett Sr. I'm talking about there. 
Week after week, year on year, he would draw an oval on a sheet of paper and compile his team in his crimped handwriting, which a secretary of his once compared to the scratchings of a chook. Sometimes he would mail them like a deranged fan to the coach. Always he would mail them to Nick and I. I think football was a great release from politics. More than that, though, it gave him a chance to be with his two sons, and I know that his love of football was also a love for us. As the years went on, Dad let his belt out a little. He really learned how to enjoy life. When we were young, his favourite food was a horrid tin meat called camp pie, <coughs> which he used to inflict on us. Once a year, with great palaver, he would cook a family meal. It was always the same. Tinned ham steaks, tinned pineapple and boiled rice. But in retirement, he taught himself how to cook an excellent prawn curry, although clearly not how to make toast. <coughs> He bought a house at the beach, became a gardener, discovered the pleasures of grandchildren. If he did mellow, I give a lot of credit to the partner of his last 10 years, Joan Grant. In 2000, Joan nearly died of meningococcal meningitis. Dad found her unconscious in her flat after calling a policeman who knocked the door down. As she lay in a coma for 10 days, Dad was with her every day. It was a miracle she survived, and I think some fabulous bond between them was forged at that time. One that perhaps makes Dad's passing a little easier for Joan, because they knew their time with each other was precious. From the time Dad was diagnosed with cancer six months ago, Joan was with him every moment. She never stopped smiling, teasing him, stroking his head, even when she was exhausted and despair at the cruelty of the cancer. Nick and I will never forget what you did for Dad, Joan. You taught us something about how to live. Typically, though, Joan will have none of this. When I tell her she's been wonderful, she just shrugs and says, what else could I do? He gave me the ten happiest years of my life. Dad died as he had lived. Though he had wanted to live more, he didn't want any bullshit, one of his favourite words, about his condition. He knew what was happening to him. In the last weeks, he was terribly sick and reduced. But he never lost his dignity, his curiosity about the world, or his nerve. I know he had nightmares, and we tried to talk to him about his fears, thinking it might make things easier. But he was never one for grand speeches. There was a job to be done, the job of dying, and he just wordlessly got on with it. He still loved to banter, though. After one gruelling day in the hospital, a young nurse came up to him with a name tag saying, Chelsea. Dad said, Hello, Chelsea. Are you related to Bill Clinton? <laughs> no, she said. Lucky for you, he said. <clears throat> In the last week, my family had been tremendously moved by the many tributes to him. I think they would have surprised him. He had a healthy ego, but he stayed ordinary. He was not conceited. I think, though, he would have been particularly tickled that he was written up on the same day in the literary pages of The Age and in the footy record. <clears throat> On Saturday, Nick and I and my family went to the Geelong St Kilda game at Telstra Dome. For the first time in about 30 years, we were going with our dad. We met at the top of the stairs at the end of Burke Street and flowed with the crowd across the footbridge toward the ground. It was warm and festive. Everyone was dressed in tribal blue and white and black and red, and someone was blowing a trumpet. And there it was, that moment I know dad loved, when there is a fleeting but great sense of collective endeavour, a sense that we're better when we do things together, that the best of the day and of life is still to come.
Dad would have enjoyed many things about Saturday. The sun, the grass, the pack stands, the colours, his grandchildren demanding drinks, the moment when you recognise each player as he runs out. And as the cats clocked up the goals, he would have let himself go. He would have embarrassed me by shouting moons at Cameron Mooney's marks. David Wojcinski's extravagant third-quarter running goal would have made him sit back and laugh. So many times on Saturday, Nick and I thought, Dad would have loved that. And it really came home to us. We're going to miss him. Dad was a friend of ours. He'd always come away from coffee with him with a good story or something sparky that he'd said. He knew things about the world and he gave good advice about how to find your way in it. But he'd also ask your advice and listen carefully to the answer. I admired the way he was able to get on with many different kinds of people without being all things to all people. He was proud of what he did in his writing, and rightly so. Yet while as a politician and a writer he was skilled with words, as a father he was sometimes uncomfortable with them. I have a strong memory of walking back from the MCG to his house in Richmond in about 1983. Geelong had won the last game of the season, and and Dad sat down and drew one of his teams, which he claimed preposterously would win the flag in about three years. Then he walked us to the gate, and we had one of our warm but awkward goodbyes. Nick and I walked off. I looked back, and he waved. Then we walked a long way down the street, and I looked back again. He was still standing at the gate, looking after us. That was our dad. What a beautiful and what a beautiful image to finish a eulogy on. And it's also the end of this episode. Thank you so much, James Button. You are one of this city's treasures. A great writer, a great thinker, a great reader and recommender of good books. James's own books are Speechless, A Year in My Father's Business, which we've talked about a bit in the episode. And also Come Back, The Fall and Rise of Geelong, a footy book. A Man After My Own Heart. My own footy book is 1989, The Great Grand Final, which you can buy on my website, tonywilsonauthor.com. Thank you, David Bridie, for our theme music. Thank you to docplay.com. Subscribe and stream the world's greatest documentaries. A big thank you to all the patron subscribers and givers and donors patreon.com forward slash speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate that's it for this wonderful eulogy episode i'm going to be back with a new episode shortly got some irons in the fire hoping for laura lex the uk comedian i put in a request with the prime minister of barbados i make such strange and eclectic interview requests in this job A lot of them end in knockbacks. A bit like dating again, but platonic and email-y. Thank you for listening. Get in touch if you like. Tony at speakola.com. Tell me to stick at it. Speak well, everyone. Until next time.